0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Understanding Types of Research in ADEM, NMOSD, and TM, including AFM. I am Gigi DeFibri from the TMA. We are a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune diseases. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Drs. Benjamin Greenberg and Kathleen Zakowski. Dr. Benjamin Greenberg was recruited to the faculty at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center where he was named Deputy Director of the Multiple Sclerosis Program and Director of the new Transverse Myelitis and Neuromyelitis Optica Program. He also established the Pediatric Demyelinating Disease Program at Children's Medical Center Dallas. Dr. Greenberg is recognized internationally as an expert in rare auto- autoimmune disorders of the central nervous system. He splits his clinical time between seeing both adult and pediatric patients. His research interests are in both the diagnosis and treatment of transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, encephalitis, multiple sclerosis, and infections of the nervous system. He is actively involved in developing better ways to diagnose and pronosticate for people with these disorders. He has led an effort to improve biorepository development and has created uniform protocols for sample handling and analysis. As part of this initiative, his research has identified novel biomarkers that may be able to distinguish between patients with various neurologic disorders. He also coordinates trials that study new treatments to prevent neurologic damage and restore function to those who have already been affected. Dr. Zukowski is currently an associate professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and Neurology at the Kennedy Krieger Institute Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She is certified as a multiple services specialist and works as the sole occupational therapist at the Johns Hopkins MS Center. Dr. Zakowski's research interests are to investigate the mechanisms that underlie sensory motor impairments and disability resulting from damage to the central nervous system so as to improve disability. To this point, her studies have focused on the motor control problems that occur as a result of neurodegenerative disease. She is developing a model using advanced neuroimaging in combination with quantitative impairment measures to understand pathologically relevant structure-function relationships. Dr. Zakaochi's current studies investigate the extent that nerve fiber changes in the brain and spinal cord are associated with changes in walking and physical impairments such as strength and sensation. This type of model is critical for tracking disease progression and evaluating rehabilitative and pharmacologic treatments for people with neurodegenerative diseases. Thank you both very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, just, so to start, um, Dr. Greenberg, can you just tell us a little bit about the different types of research that can be conducted to further knowledge about rare neuroimmune disorders?
1: Yeah, so first, thanks to you and the Transverse Myelitis Association for hosting these podcasts. Uh, they're uh, enjoyable for us on the panel and hopefully for your listeners and our patients and families. Um, the topic today around research is one that's near and dear to my heart because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what it means to do medical and scientific research. And your question about the different types is a great starting point. So, most of the time when we talk about medical research, I think people envision uh, investigational, interventional studies of drugs or treatments or procedures, uh, the classic drug trial where people are enrolled to study a new therapy or medication. and In reality, that represents actually just a small fraction of the types of research that go on. In general, research can be broken down into three areas. Um, Within clinical research, there are interventional and observational studies, and then a third category, separate from clinical research, is considered basic science, basically research that does not directly involve human subjects. It may involve samples or tissue. It may involve their DNA, uh, but they are not directly involved in the observation or in the intervention. Uh, Interventional studies are, as I described, ones where we try to understand if a certain intervention is safe, and effective in treating a person. Often these are controlled trials where we compare one treatment versus another or a treatment versus a placebo, a a non-treated group, uh, to understand the impact of the therapy. Observational studies, which is a large part of actually what we do uh, in our clinic, are meant to better understand the conditions that afflict our patients. We are still constantly revising our understanding of what has happened to our patients and why. And those observational studies are critical for creating new avenues for intervention. Often those observational studies link up with our colleagues in basic science. So these are uh, MDs and PhDs, scientists who work with uh, cells in a dish or with animals in a lab to model a disease process and better test theories about what could or could not help a person before moving interventions into a human being. So research has a lot of different aspects and uh, research can be as simple as asking people to fill out a survey, um, to collect data on how they're doing and, and what issues are affecting them and can be as complicated as a phase one uh, controlled trial where we're testing a new therapy. So there are a lot of different avenues for research um, and. We're always encouraging the the members of the TMA and our greater population uh, to try and stay as engaged and involved as possible in
2: any research
1: you're able to take part in and feel comfortable taking part in.
0: Thank you. That was a great overview. Um, And can you just talk a little bit about um, what registries are or biorepositories are?
1: Absolutely. So a registry, by definition, is a collection of information uh, about a group of people. So you can have a registry around any condition. Um, It can be around transverse myelitis or myelitis, optica, where people give their permission, give their consent for their information to be collected and stored in a database. And these registries can be used in a variety of ways. We can use them to contact people in the future if they give us their permission to take part in clinical trials so some people you know want to be kept aware if they are eligible for a trial and a registry is one way to do that some registries are done to try and just understand the health of a population so registry participants could not only give their own contact information but they may give information about their personal medical history and then as we collect one, two, three, three hundred, three thousand 300, 3,000 patients worth of information, patterns start to emerge. And those patterns can be very important for influencing how we do uh, different studies. So a registry is a collection of information. A biorepository in its purest sense is the collection of biologic specimens. This can be a blood sample, spinal fluid sample, a stool sample, a nail clippings, hair clippings, tissue from a biopsy or an autopsy, any uh, material that comes from a living being, um, uh, comes from a human being, can be put into a biorepository and tied to that person's data. So we often get requests from colleagues around the country who have an interesting idea or a theory. a about what causes transverse myelitis or neuromyelitis optica, or they have a new potential therapy for one of these conditions, and they want to test in a dish uh, aspects about the biology for humans. So they call us and they ask, you know, do you have blood samples from patients with ADEM or neuromyelitis optica or TM? And uh, thankfully, we can say yes, and we work with them on the science, and we can work with our colleagues here at UT Southwestern or anywhere in the world and share these precious specimens so that scientists can better understand the biology from a human with the condition versus just models in their lab. The animal research and basic science that uses cells is great, it's very meaningful, has changed the way we develop new therapies, but getting to understand the biology as it comes straight from a human being with the condition is hard to replace. And a biorepository is a mechanism for collecting those specimens.
0: And Dr. Greenberg, you talked um, a little bit about the difference between experimental studies and observational studies. And I was just wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about CAPTURE, um, and what the goal of the study is, and what is involved for participants.
1: So currently, we have a multi-center. Uh, study funded by PCORI, the Patient-Centered Organization for Research uh, for Outcomes Research, and uh, this is a federally funded organization that was launched uh, several years ago to fund a different type of research, to fund research that really put the patient at the center of both the design, execution, uh, and collection of information or or knowledge about a condition. We partnered with the Transverse Myelitis Association and centers around the country, including uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, John Hopkins, Kennedy Krieger, and our colleagues in Canada and Toronto uh, to come up with a network um, to enroll pediatric patients who have been affected by transverse myelitis. This is the first large-scale study of pediatric transverse myelitis that's ever been funded. Uh, recently, we've expanded to include centers in Colorado and Cincinnati. And the whole point of the CAPTURE study, which is uh, a collaborative study, is to understand the outcomes of transverse myelitis in kiddos affected with this disease. And the reason we did this was because there are no standard of cares, uh, no guidelines on how centers should be treating children with transverse myelitis. Should we use steroids? Should we use IVIG? Should we use plasma exchange? There was also no standard uh, consensus on how to treat the different variants of transverse myelitis. The classical variant that affects the white matter versus the acute flaccid myelitis variant that affects the gray matter. And so the point of the capture study was, for the first time ever, to get a cohort of children enrolled through all these centers, and virtually, uh, where families can take part in the study online without traveling to one of the centers, and share the data, and put Standardized assessments together into one of these registries, one of these databases, so that we can better understand what is actually happening to a child who's treated for TM and can patterns emerge. Uh, even at the stage we're at, which is not uh, at completion yet, we have several more years to go, we are already starting to see patterns emerge through our first looks at the data. And taking part in it has become an incredible resource, not just for us, but for companies who are interested in investing in future clinical trials for restoration of function. One of the biggest questions we ask is, what is the current knowledge about outcomes? And without studies like CAPTR, we can't tell them what the outcomes are. And so we have used this study to improve our knowledge about what we're doing today and the impact it has, and to try and come up with better ways to treat folks in the
0: future. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg, and Dr. Zakowski. Can you just tell us a little bit about your research as well?
2: Sure. Thank you for um, inviting me to speak. I'm always so glad to be um, part of things like this because um, I, I sort of, I'm trying to always represent the rehabilitation culture that's that's there. So trying to um, use my um, training to better. Um, define how and why rehabilitation um, can work for individuals who have um, conditions um, like TM and NMO and ADEM, Um, and and although there's not as much research specifically on those populations, um, my research has um, over time kind of focused on trying to... um, define outcomes that can be used to test interventions. So if we can define an outcome that is measurable and and it's sensitive enough to detect change over a a quick time period, then we can test pharmacologic interventions and also rehabilitative interventions. Um, I've also been um, really focused on trying to um, better link what we do in physical rehabilitation with how it affects the biology of the person. So, for example, we know that um, exercise is a really important intervention. That for for individuals with a you know degenerative condition or individuals who are healthy, we need to be exercising. And we understand a little bit about the physiology of you know how this is helpful to people. But um, in general, so we know that it improves cardiovascular. Um, health and can be important for um, improving mood and cognition for everyone, but, but more specifically, how do these interventions affect someone who, who has a pathology? So are there specific um, uh, changes that occur biologically to someone um, when they exercise that can be helpful or harmful to their disease process? And so that, that's the other sort of angle that I take with my research. One is to really look at the development of outcomes that are practical and useful to people and relate more to their real life than, um, than just a, a blood draw, for example. But also linking this information from the periphery, like our, our ability to move and our ability to be physically active, relate that back to what's, what's biologically really relevant for that person. Um, I've also done, um, so for one example, I'd, I've been um, working on a study um, here where we've um, enrolled individuals with transverse myelitis, and we were really interested in how one drug um, would be, um, could, it, could it improve walking? And my angle was to collect some of the clinical data and, and see if the medication um, does improve walking, but also, can I look at why why does it work in some people better than others? And so what what I use is a different technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation where I can actually measure, this device allows me to measure the, um, the health and the integrity of the main motor pathway that carries information from your brain to your limbs. And so, in addition to measuring their walking, I'm interested in can I measure how well that pathway, um, how intact it is and whether or not this medication makes a difference to that pathway. And so in this way, again, I'm trying to sort of link, always go back to the basic mechanism that is causing people trouble with moving and seeing if there are medications or rehabilitative interventions that can improve that. Great. I'm and happy to take about that,
0: but... <laughs> yes, yeah, thank you for that overview. Um, so, yeah, one of our members actually um, sent a question saying that his wife has had extensive uh, physical therapy and massaging, but these don't really seem to be improving her mobility status, so um, you know, they've been advised to see a neurological uh, physical therapist as a possible pathway to improvement. Um, can either of you comment more in a little bit more detail about what research has been conducted on
2: rehabilitation and what works best or if that's still in progress. Sure. Well, I'm glad both of us can comment. I'll I'll, I'll start, Ben, and then you can can add on. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Okay. So from my angle, um, I think uh, it's true that we don't really know of a cure from, from these conditions. So what physiotherapy can often offer is this ability to um, capitalize on um, the parts of your body that are healthy enough to improve by by increasing the activity that you have. And so a physical therapist can look at your movement and and your walking and really address um, those limitations that you have and try to improve them via activity. Um, and um, there are, you know, occupational therapy tries to look at activities that you're not able to do and can you improve those activities by by adapting them in a way that is more um, allows you to be more successful in doing those activities and um, there's so massage is there's lots of alternative therapies too and massage is one of them and you know with massage we think there are um, there are theories that that describe how um, this can change the chemical makeup of your muscles what, because you've, you're getting the massage and so this often makes people feel a lot better and part of the issue is we don't know enough about the mechanisms that are really um, causing the change to occur and so this makes it difficult to personalize the type of therapy you get in, in physical rehabilitation to really affect only only your um, only that person's limitations. and so that's that's a big problem, and that's that's why I think research is really critical in this area because the way we know that um, pharmacologic medications work is because we've tested them, and we've tested them in large studies that have shown um, what are the side effects and what are the positives and what dose do we need. But in reality in, in in physical rehabilitation, we're at the very early stages of that. We know that there are some interventions that that improve someone's mobility status, but it doesn't improve it in everyone. And this may be a problem of you're not getting the right dose. It could be a problem that you're not getting the right intensity of, of, uh, of therapy. It could be that, that um, you need to do a completely different kind of rehabilitative therapy that focuses more on sensory and not just motor. But we don't know many of those answers. So you're really the, the, you know, the person, the individual with these conditions is really dependent on getting to a physical therapist or occupational therapist or exercise physiologist that has an interest in understanding this condition and can try different different types of uh, treatments.
1: Yeah, to that I, I'd add one other comment and that is to make sure that we, uh, I think Kathy's uh, 100% correct, um, but I would also make sure that we frame the therapy uh, that we, we ask our patients to do into three separate categories. And I I think it's critical for patients and families to keep these straight because otherwise, uh, I think there can be disappointment and frustration. So uh, we do physical therapy for, I prescribe physical therapy for three different reasons. The first is to improve function, to try and take somebody who has a deficit, any deficit in their functioning, and work on ways to actually bring back function? Can we train somebody to walk better? Can we train somebody to
2: uh,
1: have a different posture? And so uh, honest to God, improvement and recovery. The second reason we prescribe or I prescribe physical therapy is, as, as Kathy eloquently stated, is to learn ways to adapt to functions that somebody may have right now. So often patients in the immediate aftermath of transverse myelitis, well, significant difficulty walking, and we can't just wait for it to come back, people have to get back to their lives and get back to work. And so some of the therapy we do is to teach people how do you adapt to your current condition while waiting for improvements in the future. But we can't not do the first category as well. So we simultaneously have to do some things that are there to improve function, while there are other things we do to adapt to a current level of functioning. And then the third reason I prescribe physical therapy is to prevent other complications that can occur without the therapy. So once somebody has a severe, uh, significant neurologic event in their their lives, um, we we tend to go through stages of different focus. The first is getting better. I want to walk again. I want to move again. I want to read again. I want my vision back, whatever whatever the deficit was. And then we move through stages of adaptation. Uh, Well, it it may or may not be going as fast as I want. How do I adapt? But often during that adaptation phase, we develop really bad habits. I uh, will have a lot of patients who you know, can walk, can move, but their walking is, is not mechanically normal and they're okay with it because they can get through their day. But over two, three, five, ten years, they develop significant orthopedic issues around their joints because they're bearing weight differently. So often we'll have people do physical therapy to correct mechanical issues that are going to cause problems down the line. And so when people talk about, uh, I've been doing physical therapy and I'm not getting better, it's very important to understand what the goals of that therapy are. Sometimes the therapy goal isn't to take you from walking with a walker to walking with a cane. Sometimes the program you're in is there for strengthening and prevention of other issues. But when working with your physicians, with, whether they be physiatrists or neurologists, with your physical therapists, occupational therapists. For trainers in a gym. It's very important for uh, patients and families to ask the question, am I doing this exercise to improve, to adapt, or to prevent secondary issues? And you need to be doing things in all three buckets. We don't get to give up on any one of the buckets um, at any time. But it it often explains why people feel as though they're stuck without improvement. It may be that the therapy they're doing is focused uh, on something different. Other than working on functional
2: improvement. Yeah, I think if I can add something to it, I think that's really important to um, to make sure that when um, if you are seeing a a physical therapist or occupational therapist, that you understand what goals that therapist has for you, because because the whole point of being there is to improve, is, is to is to just as Ben said, either improve, adapt, or prevent. But you need to understand what those are and make sure you agree with them because it's your body that we're working on. So you have to stay in this, but you have to you have to ask the therapist about this. And this is what will decide also how insurance will cover things. So it's a really important it's really important to have an open communication. And and the last thing I wanted to also mention is part of the question was um, um this person is being advised to see a neurological physical therapist. And so, so just as there are specialists and um, physicians, right, you wouldn't go see um, an orthopedic Surgeon, if you, um, if you are trying to look for a diagnosis in transverse myelitis, for example. So you, same thing in physical therapy and occupational therapy. You want to go to someone who has been trained more um, specifically about n- neurology so that they're, they have some familiarity with, with this kind of the way these kinds of diseases um, progress. And it might be that they don't have a lot of experience with your particular diagnosis, but if they have any kind of special training that um, suggest that they're very interested in learning about this and that, that they see other patients who have similar symptoms, though the, though the, the diagnosis is different, those, those kinds of therapists may be better at, at trying to really focus in on things that we could that you could work on with them. And um, Dr. Zakowski, I know you've mentioned
0: previously about massage as sort of an alternate alternative therapy. Um, but we did have a question about um, something like medical marijuana or acupuncture. You know, has there been any research on these therapies, and you know, why are why are these not studied as often, or what are the difficulties that can um, come into play when trying to study these sorts of alternative
2: therapies? Sure, sure. This comes up a lot. So, um, I mean, the the whole issue with um, medical marijuana has been a, a really big topic that lots of people ask about, and um, there. You know, it's thought that if you, um, that medical marijuana could help with relaxation, or anxiety, or spasticity even. Um, and there are, um, there are some studies that are starting now. Um, the, the, the cons, of course, to, to, um, to marijuana, for example, would be that there's, there's evidence that there are cognitive deficits that result from long-term use. Um, there's also, um, you compromise your lungs if you're smoking. Um, And we're also, I think, unanswered questions that exist because these are um, therapies that have not been um, used regularly or um, studied really intensively is how, we don't know how marijuana even affects um, our ability to um, learn new activities, how it affects our motor abilities. Um, we it is just we 're just sort of at the beginning stages where we 're really understanding um, that medical marijuana can have sort of you know good medical benefits, but how it affects um, someone 's movement and um, their ability to their mobility is still very unclear, um, and I think that um, this help you know it'll, it'll help that it's becoming more um, of a legal substance so that this can be studied in a more rigorous way and I think that is the case, but I think we're just kind of at the early stages of this and if I would say for um, for acupuncture that has been around for you know for hundreds of years and is just not been part of our western medicine um, Sort of toolbox of things that we use as regularly, and so the, again, in the same, it's just another example where there is limited. There are limited studies that have been done in a really scientifically rigorous way, and that's that's not just academic talks. Because because I'm um, I'm a I'm I'm out of medical school, it's really important that these studies be designed in a way that can truly the questions that are being asked. So one example is you want to look for studies that have a control group. Because we might see a change when you, when you um, take marijuana or you get acupuncture, but if you have nothing to compare that group with directly, then we're not sure if there is truly a change. And so these, these really carefully designed studies are, are a really important part of how we will develop our understanding of how these alternative therapies work and that will decide if it can be if, how how um, specifically useful they are for you. So that's sort of the research side of it. But I'll tell you what, what I what I tell my patients is that you know they are alternative therapies, and they are you know they have been shown to in in individual cases be advantageous at times. So. If you're going to explore that role of these alternative therapies, be very, very careful and be sure you're informing your physician of what you're doing. Be sure you're informing your therapist what you're doing, your physical or occupational therapist, because, because we don't know what the side effects of these things are in many cases. They should be informed so that they can take this into consideration when they monitor your medical care.
1: And if I could just tack on, relative to the research, you know, Kathy, you bring up a, a good point about well-controlled studies, and we get asked the question about um, the tremendous amount of lacking research on uh, natural supplements, alternative therapies, uh, nutrition and diet in, in frankly, all of medicine, let alone rare diseases. And there, there are several major obstacles to uh, doing the research. Um, One of the starting points for research for any agent, uh, for any medicine, herb, supplement, whatever the case may be, is you have to know what you are giving to subjects. And what I give to subject number one and subject number 1,000 has to be molecularly identical because otherwise you won't be able to interpret the results. When people refer to medical marijuana, they're actually referring to probably over a hundred different compounds that have been grown and synthesized in, you know, people's garages, backyards, and now, you know, the state of Colorado and elsewhere. And so it, it's really been impossible to do a rigorous medical marijuana trial because we, we haven't had a pure supply of the molecule. Um, what's been interesting as Colorado legalized marijuana was seeing the incredible diversity and variety of medicinal marijuana that has sprung up with very different characteristics to it. This goes also for um, any supplement that people take. Um, So things as simple as um, uh, vitamins. Uh, If we look at vitamin D, which I uh, recommend for my patients on a regular basis, I, I embrace the data. Uh, Around vitamin D and its potential help for folks, when there have been studies on uh, off-the-shelf products that are labeled as vitamin D3, the potency of those uh, uh, those bottles ranged anywhere from 10 to 150 percent of what was on the label. There are no strict manufacturing guidelines for natural supplements, and what I tell people is. There is no way for me or for you to know exactly what you're taking when somebody says, hey, take this vitamin, because batch to batch, everything changes. And so it's been really difficult to do scientifically rigorous studies. And I am in the clinic as a clinician, all in favor for my patients exploring and uh, pursuing things that improve their quality of life or things they believe in or things that would help them. And I keep an open mind, and I want to know what they're taking to look for any safety issues. But uh, I also want to remind people that the reason we don't see the science behind it is a lot of these things do not have a consistency uh, for any of us to know what we're taking. And so science requires a certain level of rigor for us to be able to say what we know and what we don't know. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to do that in the areas of alternative medicine and science.
0: And um, Dr. Greenberg, so you know, IV steroids, PLEX, and IVIG are the acute therapies most often used in its, um, acute attacks of these disorders. Um, so have there been studies conducted on these treatments and their use in these disorders? And then also, what about um, AFM? Because um, we've heard from um, one of our members who has a child with AS- AFM, um, is just not sure why the CDC doesn't recommend these treatments. and so. Just wondering if it's based on research findings or if it's because we're still in the early stages of understanding ASM. If you just expand a little bit
1: on that, that would be great. So within um, most of these conditions, and I'll leave uh, acute flaccid myelitis, this variant of transverse myelitis aside for a moment. Um, the studies that have been done on uh, corticosteroids, IVIG and plasma exchange have been mostly retrospective, meaning. We've taken the data of patients who have undergone the different treatments and compared how people do. Uh, there have been some um, very small prospective control trials, uh, now over 20 years old, a uh, study of plasma exchange in people with uh, inflammation of the central nervous system, and this included people with all sorts of diagnoses, including uh, ultimately multiple sclerosis was, was included. Um, and. What it showed was plasma exchange was uh, safe and effective in people who have inflammation within uh, the brain or spinal cord. Uh, Since that study there have mainly been retrospective studies that uh, seem to confirm that these treatments make a difference and um, the patterns we see in our clinic population, uh, again retrospectively, are that early treatment makes a difference and the sense we get is uh, that plasma exchange uh, in addition to corticosteroids makes a difference. IVIG has been used for years and has been studied in an inflammatory condition that affects the peripheral nervous system, uh, so not the brain or spinal cord. This, this condition is called Guillain-Barre, and IVIG uh, and plasma exchange uh, both show clear benefits in. Uh, patients with those autoimmune conditions affecting the peripheral nerves. So we have small amounts of controlled uh, studies and then several decades of experience uh, to suggest and reinforce our belief that uh, these therapies make a difference. We actually tried for two years unsuccessfully here in Dallas to do a head-to-head comparison of IVIG versus plasma exchange in a controlled study, and these are very difficult studies to recruit for and do. And uh, we have colleagues in the United Kingdom right now who are pursuing a controlled study of IVIG, and we're looking forward to seeing their, their results in the future. But um, the data we have is, is limited, but, but consistently shows the benefits of the therapies. Recently, uh, there has been controversy around this uh, with the Centers for Disease Control making a blanket recommendation uh, to avoid plasma exchange and even steroids in people with the acute flaccid myelitis variant of uh, transverse myelitis. Um, speaking personally, so uh, this is this is just myself and my opinion and, and not on anyone else's behalf, I think that recommendation was both premature and not supported uh, by any clinical data. It was driven by a theoretical concern that AFM is caused by an active viral infection in the spinal cord and that steroids and plasma exchange could make that viral infection worse. In our experience and other viral infections of the central nervous system, we have not seen plasma exchange or steroids worsen those infections. And what we have seen in our own experience here at our center and at others is children with acute myelitis show stabilization and some improvement with these therapies. So we are, I am, uh, somewhat at odds with that CDC recommendation. I I was shocked when it came out. And we we have decided that we are going to agree to disagree. It is in these disagreements that research has to head. So I I consider myself, uh, perhaps inappropriately, Kathy knows me, she can vouch, a relatively reasonable person. I try to be thoughtful about these things and I try to be thoughtful about the care that we provide to our patients. I have respect for my colleagues at the CDC, respect for thoughtful people who may be recommendations. So when there are two thoughtful individuals who fundamentally disagree with the recommendation, that is why we do clinical research. That is why we cannot go five or 10 years without collecting the data to answer this very important question, should people get this therapy or not? I could be wrong in my recommendation. It could be a mistake uh, to give plasma exchange to people with acute plasma myelitis, but I want to prove whether the hunches are right or wrong or uh, how to pick patients more appropriately. So this is a great example of why we need clinical research and why we need everybody in a patient community to invest their time in research efforts. We, we have not recruited as many people as we want for the capture study. And we understand families, uh, we, we understand better than most that families are dealing with so much when a loved one goes through this condition. Um, and at the same time to add the burden of taking time to do a survey or fill out a questionnaire is a lot. Uh, but without our families, we will not be able to answer these questions. So it's, it's a plea to encourage folks to consider taking part in research.
0: Thank you. And um, I just also want to talk a little bit about the challenges to conducting research on rare disorders. So all of these disorders are, are rare. Um, so are there specific challenges for rare disorders? And then are there other more common disorders that can help us understand these PM, uh, NMO, and ADEM? And, you know, going the other way, what research on these rare disorders, can, what can they tell us about other conditions? So, uh, I can okay. go, ahead, Kathy, you want to go ahead. Go ahead.
2: I'll go after you. Okay. Go
1: ahead. So, I'll talk about the challenges, and then, Kathy, I, I think it, you have a great perspective on kind of how these conditions interrelate to a variety of other conditions and how we can get cross talk. So, um, the challenges are pretty significant. Um, so, when we attach the word rare in front of a disease population uh, or diagnosis, Right off the bat, it means we have few people to uh, uh, recruit from, a smaller population to recruit from. In general, a very small fraction of a percent of individuals, uh, and I'll talk about the United States, uh, take part in any form of clinical research. Um, And that is driven for a lot of reasons. uh, There's risk involved, Uh, even if it's a survey study, there's risk to privacy. It's an inconvenience. It takes time. Uh, It's a variety of things. And so when we're already starting with a smaller population, to have such a small percent of a population taking part uh, limits us. Second obstacle is communication. Often uh, patients and families are not aware of opportunities to take part in research. We have colleagues all over the country. There's an imaging study going uh, going on in Boston, an imaging study happening here in Dallas. There's... Uh, rehabilitation research happening in Birmingham and Baltimore there there are opportunities there but often people are not plugged in or aware so the transverse myelitis Association does a great job of keeping these studies updated on their website and uh, trying to advertise it but people do need to search and see what's available in the region and then lastly one of the obstacles is obviously funding um, if you're the National Institutes of Health um, that has absolutely transformed medical and basic science research uh, in our country that, that is a generational impact in terms of what it has done to improve what we can do and what we will be able to do in the future, you have to pick priorities. There, there is a very tight budget. And uh, there are more people suffering from cancer and diabetes and stroke and heart disease than there are transverse myelitis. And so every dollar spent on a lab Understanding cancer will impact a broader population of our citizens than uh, transverse myelitis, and that's a Unfortunate and very cold, but real reality that uh, groups like the NIH face. So the funding aspects of it call to uh, Organizations like the transverse myelitis association uh, To uh, advance research in rare diseases. I do give credit that the NIH has Dramatically increased its uh, resource allocation to rare diseases over the last decade. Organizations like Corey have specifically targeted rare disease communities to support. Um, but we have a long way to go. We, we're appreciative of the support and uh, of those organizations, the TMA, and our, our families and our patients uh, here at Southwestern. We are very lucky to have um, an incredible community of patients and families that give us tremendous faith and support. But those funds are necessary um, to get this research done for small, small population patients. Um, Kathy, do you want to talk about interconnectedness?
2: Sure, sure. So I, I think that it's a really important question that I think people should be very aware of. Too that, that um, just for the reasons that Ben described, it's hard to always do um, studies on just the particular um, pathology that you might. Be most interested in, and so um, I'll tell you from my own personal experience that I started out um, my career really studying a very rare disease, um, and it worked out really well for a few years. Um, and then more senior people basically said, "You can't do this. You need to broaden and and explore other um, pathologies that are that have some similarities." And I and and for the reasons that it will be more well funded and for the reasons that this can help those rare diseases. If you better understand diseases or pathologies that are different but have some similarities, you can bring a whole new um, perspective to the, to the study of those conditions. So I thought I would maybe give you an example. So um, if you think of um, multiple sclerosis, it's a much more common disease than, than the ones we're talking about here today, um, but it has some similarities in that the immune system is impaired. It, you have multiple lesions that affect the central nervous system and it's degenerative so it worsens over time so those three key key areas really are very similar in some ways to other conditions. So if we, can, if we can read the studies that have been done in MS, I've even done studies where I've used both populations. So I've used um, a really rare disease and I've also studied um, a more common disease in the same study to try to see if I can more concretely build, um, build an argument for how similar they are. And so this would lead us to better understand how to treat the more rare condition by learning from this more common condition. Um, another another important example would be, say, stroke, so someone who's had a stroke has had a single lesion that's affected their central nervous system, and this is very common in the United States. So there are a lot of studies that have looked at people who've had a stroke. Now the similarities are that these individuals have a very different pathology than someone with, say, transverse myelitis, for example. But They also have trouble walking. Um, They have um, a period of time when they're going to make the most gains after after the the event that they've had, a stroke or the event from TM. Um, And then over time, the progress may slow, but it doesn't stop. So what we've learned from much of the stroke literature is that there is a window of time when you make the most gains, but that you can continue to make some gains far outside of, of that window as well. Another thing that I've learned from um, sort of pairing my interest in, in understanding how do we make these symptoms better, how do we make people's lives better through rehabilitation is to, um, uh, when I've worked with the groups that that where we're studying very rare diseases, we um, in one group we've developed a database. So this database allows patients to Um, fill out surveys, and it goes into this central database. It also allows physicians and therapists to fill out, um, when they're doing an evaluation, it goes to a central database so that scientists around the world who are interested in this population can have access to this data, even if they're at a much smaller medical center where they don't have as many resources. A big benefit of um, being at Johns Hopkins and Kennedy Krieger, and I'm um, and same with Ben, um, is that we're at very large medical centers where we have the resources in the sense that we have large patient populations and um, lots of different types of laboratories that might be interested in this, in the same pathology. But there are there are scientists all over the world that have very important um, contributions they can make to understanding these rare diseases. If they're given access to data that they can use, and so what I've learned is, these, these, this kind of central database has a really has really good potential for allowing research to grow at a faster rate um, than it is now. Thank you both. Um, and then
0: I, we just we one of the questions we get a lot is about um, stem cell test, uh, stem cell trials, or um, and so we had. Someone asked, you know, how long do you think it will be until there's stem cell testing for incomplete quads? It seems to be taking much longer to start these trials than was originally thought.
1: Yeah, this this has been yeah, so this has been a, a topic of conversation for um, easily 15 years now, more. Um, as there was the, and it's important to put it in perspective as to why it's taking so long. Um, so we we knew that stem cells um, existed for you know uh, decades over 50 years, and you could take uh, stem cells in a lab and put in a dish, and they would turn into all sorts of different types of cells. What changed over 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago, was increasing ability to control what cells. Uh, came out the other end. If, if I inject stem cells into your spinal cord, in general, you don't want a tooth to grow or a heart to grow. You want the spinal cord to be repaired. And so we realized that if you take a stem cell too early in its stage, it can grow into anything. And so just to give these stem cells could lead to uh, unintended consequences. And in fact, in some of the early studies with animals and others and even some of the human studies that have gone on with stem cells we have seen unintended consequences uh, whether it be cyst formations or induction of inflammation a variety of things so it took years for the work to be done so that when we inject cells into a human being we actually know what we're injecting which frankly is what differentiates the approach is being taken in dual labs versus some of the boutique clinics that have popped up around the world charging tens of thousands of dollars to infuse, we don't know, into into individuals. And so we've gone to a stage now where the cell line, there are multiple cell lines that exist that do different things within the central nervous system. And now it's a matter of delivery and understanding what they do. There have been some trials and ongoing trials in spinal cord injury, traumatic spinal cord injury, um, We are gearing up and have our fingers crossed to do uh, stem cell trials and transverse myelitis in 2017. We are going through the regulatory process right now. And the the process has been slow because we have had to prove to ourselves, as well as the FDA, that what we inject uh, will be pure and will have the least risk of unintended consequences. When there have been small studies of the injection of stem cells uh, into the spinal fluid uh, or into the spinal cord, when the studies have been done uh, without a lot of control, we have seen um, some ill effects. We've had uh, some patients who develop new inflammation within the nervous system. So the, the last thing somebody with transverse myelitis needs is a new inflammation in their spinal cord. So we've worked methodically to sort out how do you prevent that from happening. And then we had to sort out the procedures for getting the stem cells in. Uh, To inject them just into a vein or into spinal fluid doesn't get the cells exactly where we want them with as big a degree as we want. And so the techniques had to be developed to surgically and directly inject these cells into a spinal cord. That is not a technique that has ever been around, has ever been developed or used in surgery. So there were years spent on studying how do we get a, a, a cell based therapy into the brain or into the spinal cord of an individual who needs it in the place that they need it. So it, it, has been slow. My fingers are crossed that you'll hear, um, exciting announcements by the TMA in 2017 to launch an actual trial in transverse myelitis. Um, and we, we just, we keep pushing ahead every year, crossing off the different things we have to do to do this correctly. It is it is a massive undertaking to do this the right way and unfortunately it's taken a lot of time
0: and um, we had another question from um, our community um, which you know as you said some, sometimes in trials take it takes a long time to get everything set up but then there's also once research findings um, you know once there have been findings you know getting that out to um, physicians or other healthcare providers about them that that there's also a delay there sometimes. So um, one of our members said that she recently learned that the blood tests that are done to check for Lyme disease as a possible cause of TM is over 40 years old and that there are much newer and more advanced tests available today um, that show that people who test negative for Lyme on um, that old test um, actually do have Lyme disease when tested with the newer method. why aren't these patients being tested with newer, more advanced tests, or what are the challenges of getting research findings put into practice?
1: So I'll I'll give my answer and let Kathy chime in. So uh, I'll take the broader question first and then address the specific about Lyme. So dissemination of new knowledge, so uh, how does that happen within science? It's actually a huge challenge. Um, uh, everybody in in the country is busy uh, our lawyers are busy our engineers are busy our teachers are busy uh, people are working hard in their professions raising families doing a thousand different things and the same is true for physicians and the amount of new knowledge generated on conditions is thankfully growing dramatically but keeping up with that uh, is massive I I uh, go back and look at things that I was taught in medical school that have been proven wrong uh, since I graduated. And so disseminating new knowledge is um, challenging. We do it in a variety of ways through continuing medical education. And the most most rigorous way and the way that has worked the best is through what's called peer-reviewed publications. So as new knowledge is uh, created, we submit it to, or new theories are created, or new data is created, we submit it to our peers to review and critique, and then if it passes a certain level of credibility in an anonymous fashion, it uh, gets published in peer-reviewed journals, and we do read, uh, we read constantly, trying to keep up with this mass of information. As part of the CAPTURE study, and this has been a, a big focus of the quarry. Uh, was how could you come up with novel ways to disseminate information? And as part of the CAPTURE study and the support, we're working with the TMA and others to distribute data in a more meaningful way to clinicians who care for patients with this condition. Relative to the Lyme question, this is a great example. I, I've been told this multiple times that the, the test for Lyme disease is, is very old and there are newer ones that are available that are better. Uh, There there have been advances in testing for all sorts of things, Lines, advances in testing for the uh, NMO antibody for NMO patients, uh, enhancements in testing for other antibodies. Sometimes these tests are done in reputable labs, and sometimes they are not. I will caution people that there are for-profit companies that advertise their services as the next best, greatest thing uh and criticize very harshly uh testing capabilities that are out there and they are in it for a profit, pure and simple. And some of the proof is uh when you look at the peer reviewed literature, uh the studies that uh are either they either have not done and not published or they have been wholly panned uh by colleagues as being done very, very poorly with Uh, hard-to-interpret or uninterpretable results or, worse-yet, results that are quite questionable. And so uh, I always encourage folks to talk about testing and testing results with their clinicians um, to sort out what is the data backing um, the testing that was done. And this is true for any test, whether it's ordered by your treating physician or, or recommended to you by a friend and you find it on the Internet, there needs to be a dialogue about these things. Um, there, there is a very contentious world out there when it comes to things like Lyme and a variety of other conditions that make it very difficult to know um, what's accurate and what's not. And we have to trust uh, people who spend their careers studying this um, uh, to try and give us some guidance. Um, I would, I
2: wouldn't mind commenting a little bit too. So, I think part of what I hear my patients often say is that. It's really hard um, to read some of the literature that's out there, right? So it's not really um, it's it's written in a way that um, that scientists um, can capture the information, but it's not always written in a way that is accessible to everyone else. And so I think um, it's because I think part of the onus in our particular culture is to be informed as a, as a consumer, right? So so um, we're expecting our physicians and our therapists to be um, up to date on everything, but the reality is that they're human, and so it's. Our, I think the responsibility is really up to us individually to read as much of the literature as we can. Um, I think the TMA does a nice job of um, kind of summarizing complicated data that comes out. At least I've seen that in the past, and I know, <clears throat> in the um, at the um, symposium that that we do here for. Um, Um, Once a year, um, Dr. Levy will actually summarize the studies that have happened this year that are relevant. And I think those kinds of forums are really a good way to stay informed so that you can ask questions um, to your physician's to your therapist so that you as the consumer are aware of why you're doing certain tests um, why you might be doing an older version of a test when it seems like you should be doing a more um, more up to date version um, um, and I think that's that's a really important um, thing to keep in mind but also to keep in mind that the way the so you may, um, another thing patients have told me that is that they're part of a study and they never hear back about what happened with that study and so as Ben explained it, it does get um, put out to um, peer review and published, but often it's not published in a way that might even um, be uh, useful to the patient exactly, right? So the, the paper that we, that we write might be really um, theoretical or might really get to what the mechanism is for the problem, which is really important, but not practically useful at your end. At the at the consumer end, and so there are different types of journals. Some journals that will summarize information that is makes it more accessible in a clinical way, and some journals that are really designed to be really much more on the basic science kind of mechanistic version. So both of those, um, so a study that someone participates in may result in a paper that can go in either or both of those piles, but but. It, it you should be able to go back to the person that you were in the study for and ask them what happened with that study. I've had patients who've come back and asked me, and then I will send them papers that I've written from that. And, and um, the reality is I should probably do that for every study I do. But as Ben said, it gets very busy and fast-paced, and so in my efforts, to try to keep moving forward, I might miss some of those steps. And so, again, asking the person the question or asking for clarification or what happened with that study is, a, is really the best way to get the information. You really have to be um, very um, good about going to the source and trying to stay as informed as possible.
0: Great, so um, we're at the end of our hour for the podcast. This has been very informative and helpful to me and to our community as well, so thank you both very much. We're grateful for your time um, and your commitment to the community, so thank you very much. Thanks for having us. This was this interesting. Thank you. Um, and, just, and for all of our listeners, um, the podcast will be recorded and made available on our website. Um, we also were asked about participating in research, which was talked about in this podcast. Um, we do have clinical trials and studies listed on our website. We send emails about uh, new studies, and we also, as Dr. Um, Zikowski said, we do publish um, summaries of peer-reviewed literature, so you can look out for that. Um, and we also are currently um, we have a, a new campaign, the My Life, My Hope campaign, uh, where we'll be sharing stories of people uh, who. Um, have been affected by these disorders or who work um, with people with these disorders um, for 100 days. So keep a lookout for that as well. Thank you very much.